You know, I don't, I don't know about you, but I get a little disturbed when, you know, it's October and Kmart has Christmas music playing and, and Christmas paraphernalia on the shelves and it's like, wait a minute, what happened to Thanksgiving? Uh, it's not even close to turkey time yet, you know? But then you get to December and it's like, yeah, okay, now it's time to start celebrating. Now it's time to start all the traditions and the, and the fun things that go along with, with Christmas. And as Christmas it gets closer and closer, the story of Jesus begins to get told in more and different ways. I don't know, maybe you enjoy reading the story of his birth from the Bible with your family on Christmas Eve. Uh, a lot of people do that. That's a tradition for a lot of people. Or maybe uh, you, in the past you've attended churches that did big Christmas musicals where you could kind of relive the whole story of the, the nativity. Some of you might go and drive through a living nativity. I, I, they have one of those around here every once in a while. I, I don't know if it happens every year. Some of you watch Christmas specials on TV, uh, the animated ones, you know, which I think we've already seen Rudolph at least once. <laughs> we have a granddaughter, it works that way, you know. And even if it didn't, we'd probably still watch it. Or the more factual ones <laughs> about the Christmas story, like uh, the Nativity story. I don't know if you've ever seen that on TV. It's one of those specials they run every year. It actually does a pretty good job of kind of capturing a little bit of what it was like in those ancient days when, when Jesus was first born. All these things, to some degree, they help us to get in the spirit of the season. But if we really want to experience the spirit of the Christmas season, we have to understand that the Christmas story well, it's not about holiday specials. It's not about gifts. It's not about holiday dinners. It's not about decorations. It's not even about eggnog as much as I might like eggnog. The Christmas story is ultimately about people. It's about real people in real circumstances. Servants, shepherds, sages, common people with stories that were marked by scandal, by stumbles, and also by supernatural spectacles. In the midst of them all, hovering over them all, the hero of it all is God. Sovereign God. Father God, Jesus the Son, the Holy Spirit, the Savior, the Savior of our souls, the Savior of sinking hearts. God, the one that passes out high callings to his people, the one who gives second chances, the one who is a moral compass to anyone who would follow, just like the star of Bethlehem. These are just common people in the hands of an uncommon God. And if we look closely enough at this cast of characters, which is what my sermon series is going to be about, this cast of characters, we find sometimes our story in theirs, or at least a challenge from their story to ours. We find hope where they found hope, in the hands of an infant king laying in a manger. Over the next few weeks leading up to Christmas, I want to pull back the curtain on your imagination and introduce you to the cast of characters filling out the greatest story ever told. And of course, God, in his passing out of, of the parts at the nativity, he gave the female lead to a young girl named Mary. 
Mary's importance as the Christmas story can hardly be overstated. In fact, I recently read about a small boy that was writing a letter to God about Christmas presents that he really wanted very badly. He wrote, I've been good for six months now. But then after a moment's reflection, he crossed out six months and he wrote three. But after another pause, he crossed that out and he put two weeks. There was another pause and he crossed that out too. Then he got up from the table, he went over to the little nativity scene that had the figures of Mary and Joseph, and he he picked up the figure of Mary, and he went back to his writing, and he started again. Dear God, if you ever want to see your mother again, Jesus is a centerpiece to this story, but Mary has a very significant part to play. More than any other woman, I believe, in in the history of the world, Mary holds a place of honor from this story. Such a place of honor, in fact, that some sects of Christianity have all but deified Mary, making her somewhere close to the same level of Jesus, almost making her like a fourth member of the Trinity. Of course, it wouldn't be a Trinity then, because tri means three. It would be a quadrinity or something like that. But from what I've read of Mary's life, what little there is to actually read of Mary's life, there's not a lot, I think Mary would be deeply saddened by that kind of nonsense. She was a remarkable woman, a godly woman to be sure, and by all accounts, a very humble person. And I think we can learn a lot from her. I want to spend a little time looking at her life, what it was like, who she really was and how she responded to life, to people, and especially how she responded to God. I believe that we can find our story in hers. So I want to take a moment. We're going to pray. And then we're going to jump into a look at Mary's life, the leading lady of the Christmas story. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I just want to thank you that you use real people, normal people like us, common people. You use kings, you use princes, but you also use shepherds ditch diggers, grocery clerks. Your hand has called each and every one of us to be a part of the story. Father, I pray that we would see ourselves in Mary's story and that we would be challenged by the way she relates to you and the way she relates to others. Give us eyes to see, ears to hear, hearts to receive. In Jesus' name, amen. If you turn with me to Luke chapter 1, most of what we know about Mary, though she appears in the Gospels, actually throughout the Gospels, beginning to the end of the Gospels, she appears in small places, but most of what we know about Mary is contained in Luke chapter 1, verses 26 through 56. That's probably the, the biggest part of her history that we get in one place. I want you to keep your Bibles open to this passage. I'm not going to read the whole passage right now. We're actually just going to kind of walk through this passage together. I'm going to start with the first two verses. First two verses, they give us a little bit of information about who Mary is, about Mary's background, pretty much the only background, actually, that we have in Scripture. In Luke chapter 1, verse 26, I'm reading out of the NIV, it says this, in the sixth month, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, 
a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. Now, the fact that Mary lived in Nazareth means that she came from fairly humble beginnings. Nazareth wasn't known for very much. In fact, later in the Gospel of John, as Jesus is calling his disciples, Philip, one of the disciples, goes and gets Nathanael, and this is the conversation between Philip and Nathanael. 1 John uh, chapter, uh, four, verse 45, Philip found Nathanael and told him, we have found the one that Moses wrote about in the law and about whom the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. This is Philip's response, or Nathanael's response. Nazareth? Can anything good come from there? It wasn't renowned for much, folks. In fact, it was renowned for pretty much nothing. It was a small town, insignificant. It sat on the outskirts of a Roman garrison. It boasted a few bars, probably a red light district, that offered some weekend entertainment to the soldiers. Needless to say, Nazareth wasn't the brightest star in the ancient Near East. It would be something on the level of having the President of the United States born in Santa Maria, or maybe Guadalupe, kind of like that. I mean, that's, that, that's what we're shooting for here. Really humble beginnings, to be sure. Mary was pledged to be married, and she was still a virgin. That probably means that she was no more than maybe 15 years old. That would have been common back then. She was a godly young lady. She probably came from a God-fearing family. Mary was living a simple, small-town, secluded life when suddenly everything goes upside down. Everything gets changed in a moment. She's shoved from the shadows of a small-town life into the center stage of the world when an angel appears to her and says in verse 28, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Now, that in and of itself is not so bad, right? Hey, that's pretty good news. I'd like to hear from an angel, you know, that said, hey, God's happy with you. A little frightening, but not a bad thing. But the angel didn't stop there, and that's where it gets a little hard. In verse 30, the angel keeps going. Do not be afraid, Mary, you've, been found, you've found favor with God. You will be with child and give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will never end. Okay, this just went from a little bit frightening to terrifying. It's like suddenly God had pulled the rug out underneath Mary's quiet little life. Was this good news? Absolutely. Every young woman wanted to be the mother of the Savior of the nation. This was something that was spoken about for centuries. Uh, Melissa shared a little bit from Isaiah. Isaiah prophesied about him over 700 years before he was born. There was an expectation of a Savior to come. So on one level, this was great news. On another level, this was bad news. Terribly bad news. How was she going to explain this to her folks? How was she going to explain this to her fiancé, Joseph? Who would believe a story like this? Well, Joseph didn't. He was ready to write her a certificate of divorce and send her packing. Her parents, well, they actually did kind of send her packing. They sent her off to visit Elizabeth, her cousin, for about three months. 
Isn't that what you do with an unwed pregnant girl? Get them out of town? Imagine that. 15 years old, pregnant, and unmarried. Can you imagine what it must have been like for her showing up to church on Saturday morning? Yeah, Saturday morning, their Sabbath is Saturday, not Sunday. While none of us may have ever been in Mary's shoes, I think we can relate to some degree. You've been in difficult situations. Maybe you found yourself in situations that resulted in broken relationships or a loss of your reputation, whether it was your fault or not. Maybe there have been times when you had a, a story that no one would believe or when you were ashamed to show your face in church on Sunday morning. Or maybe you can relate to Mary's fear and anxiety. We've all been in over our heads before. I can't imagine what it would be like to be 15 years old and suddenly be thrust into this story. Maybe you felt overwhelmed even by the calling of God on your life, not knowing if that's really what you were meant to do or want to do. Maybe you made some choices that seemed right at the time, but all of that blew up in your face later. I think we can all relate to some degree the anxiety that she's going through. A photographer for a natural magazine was assigned to get photos of a great forest fire. So he was told to hurry to a nearby airport where a plane would be waiting for him. When he arrived at the airport, the plane was warming up near the runway, and he jumped in with his equipment, and he said, let's go, let's go. The pilot swung the plane into the wind, and soon they were in the air. Fly over the north side of the fire, yelled the photographer. I want to make, oh, three or four low-level passes. Why, asked the pilot. Well, because I'm a photographer, and photographers take pictures. That's what I'm here to do. After a pause, the pilot said, you mean you're not the flight instructor? Talk about over your head. I believe that there's something here that we can learn from Mary's life. Despite having a calling from God that turned her life upside down, she still handled everything with amazing grace, incredible maturity, and some very stalwart faith. I don't know how life could have gone more sideways than it did for Mary. But the choices she made when it did make all the difference in her legacy. She chose to accept this thing that happened to her as God's blessing on her life instead of a curse. Her response to the angel Gabriel in verse 38, I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May it be to me as you have said. I think we've lost this in our society today. You do realize that each and every one of you who are called of God are servants. Paul talks about himself as a bondservant. That's what you are. A bondservant wasn't somebody who found themselves accidentally in servitude to someone else. A bondservant was somebody who purposely sold themselves into servitude. It was like employment, so to speak. Paul uses that term because he chose to respond to God. And that's what we did when we accepted Jesus Christ as our Savior. We chose to respond to God. But did we really choose to become servants? You see, servants don't have a choice in much of their life, do they? 
Even employed don't have a lot of choice in a lot of things. If you're employed by somebody, you show up when they tell you to show up, right? Or you won't be employed for very long, right? Servants had to do what their master asked them to do or told them to do. You know what? If you don't accomplish the job that you've been hired to do, will you have a job for very long? No, you won't. There's something about servitude that we don't quite get, I think, in the kingdom of God. Our life has been given to God. Now, we serve the most benevolent, loving master that you could ever, ever imagine. This is true. But we serve a master nonetheless. And sometimes I think we miss that. I love Mary's response. Be it unto me as you have said. I'm here, Lord. Whatever it is you want, nothing comes before you. Nothing gets held back from you. I'm here, Lord. I am the Lord's servant. May it be to me as you have said. This reveals her heart towards God. Last week I talked about being thankful for things that can be difficult, like being grateful for paying taxes because it means I'm employed. One of the things I've been thankful for is pastoring a small church. It's been on my mind this last week about counting my blessings. Remember I told you to count your blessings this last week? It's Thanksgiving. We're supposed to remember the things we're thankful for. Well, I'm, I'm being honest with you here. I'm thankful for pastoring a small church. Now, don't get me wrong. I do want this church to grow. I expect it to grow. It needs to grow. We need to reach more people for the sake of the gospel. We need to reach more people so their lives can be abundant. We need to reach more people so that they can be healed and delivered from their wounds and their lies, the things that hold them back from that abundant life. We need to reach more people. This place needs to be filled to overflowing. That being said, I'm grateful for where we are right now because it means I get a chance right now, to know each of you a little bit better. As the church grows, that'll get harder and harder and harder to do. But I'm grateful because ultimately ministry is about people. It's about relationships. Just like the Christmas story is about people more than the plot of the story. I want my life to be like Mary's life. Whatever you ask me, Lord, whatever, whatever you want me to do, wherever you want me to go, I am the Lord's servant. May it be to me as you've said. That is the heart of a person that is in love with God, to follow what God asks them to do. Yet, there's something you need to understand about Mary's story. We tend to think, oh, what an incredible young woman, standing alone under all that pressure, that unmovable rock of faith. Well, that's mostly true except for the lone part. Mary didn't do this amazing journey with God alone, and neither should we. In fact, she did one of the smartest things anybody can ever do. She sought out someone going through her own amazing journey with God, her cousin Elizabeth. I think this is, this is an often missed part of the story. Folks, God doesn't call his people to walk this journey of faith alone. 
Not only does he go with us, but he puts others alongside of us for support, for encouragement, for instruction. Yeah, after Gabriel tells Mary what's going to happen to her, he lets her know where to go to get support. God never leaves us hanging, okay? He lets her know where to go to get support. She is cousin to a lady going through a miracle of her own. This is how it happens in verse 34. Mary says, well, how is this going to be done? I'm, I'm still a virgin. And Gabriel's answer is this. The Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Now get this, because here's the support thing, okay? In verse 36, even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age, and she who was said to be barren is in her sixth month, for nothing is impossible with God. Then Gabriel leaves. Okay, Mary, this amazing thing is going to happen to you. You're going to be an unwed mother of the Messiah. Congratulations. Don't worry about that virgin thing. God got it all worked out because, well, guess what? Nothing's impossible with God, right? Oh, oh yeah, and guess what? Your cousin Elizabeth, you know, barren Elizabeth, old Elizabeth, too old to have children, Elizabeth? Well, God has got that covered too. Your journey and her journey are both God things and nothing, absolutely nothing is too hard for God. Now, in my opinion, this whole thing is a a testimony to the wisdom of a 15-year-old girl. She puts two and two together right away. This girl is smart. If God is doing this amazing miracle in my life, and he's doing this amazing miracle in Lizzie's life, then we ought to get together. So hence, verse 39. At that time, Mary got ready and hurried to a town in the hill country of Judea, where she entered Zechariah's home and greeted Elizabeth. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leapt in her womb. Now John would be about six months old, give or take a little. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. In a loud voice, she exclaimed, "'Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the child you will bear. But why am I so favored that the mother of my Lord should come to me?' As soon as the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby in my womb leapt for joy. Blessed is she who has believed what the Lord has said to her will be accomplished. This greeting is a confirmation of the Lord's favor and the Lord's plan for Mary. Imagine the encouragement these words carry. You could call this a word of knowledge if you want to. You could call it a prophetic utterance if you want to. But there's no indication that Elizabeth knew in advance that Mary was pregnant, much less the details of her pregnancy. Yet here, Elizabeth mentions at least three things she would not have known except that God revealed them to encourage Mary. First, she knows that Mary is pregnant. Okay. Think about this for a minute. The scripture says that Mary hurried. She made haste to see Elizabeth. Now, Mary is in Nazareth. Nazareth stands about 80 miles to the north of Judea. Elizabeth lives in the hills above Judea. 
That would be a journey on foot of about one week at the most 10 days to get there. So it stands to reason that there are absolutely no outward signs that Mary is pregnant yet. It's only been about 10 days. Folks, she hurried, okay? So she isn't showing. But Elizabeth already knows. Now, you can say that news travels fast, but if Mary hurried, it's doubtful Elizabeth had heard anything about it yet, especially living 80 miles away. They didn't have texting, okay? No phones, not even a mail service. Second, Elizabeth knows who the baby is. Verse 43, why am I so favored that the mother of my Lord should come to me? Another prophetic confirmation that what the angel said is true and an encouragement of God's favor on Mary. Verse 42, in a loud voice, she exclaimed, blessed are you among women and blessed is the child you will bear. I I find that interesting. The New Testament is written in what's called Koinonia Greek, okay? Almost all of the New Testament, except for the the quotes from the Old Testament, are written in Koinonia Greek. Some of those are, are written in Arabic. However, when we studied through the Beatitudes many ages ago, and we got to the blesseds are you, remember those? Do you remember the definition of blessed? The definition of blessed is happy. Actually, it means ridiculously happy. Ridiculously happy are you. Think about this, okay? Elizabeth is standing in front of Mary saying, ridiculously happy, blessed, are you among women. Ridiculously happy is the child you will bear. What? This is different. This is weird. Elizabeth knows how difficult Mary's situation is. How crazy is this whole thing? It must seem out of this world. But she also seems to know that this is about joy. This is about true happiness, ridiculously happy. Mary has accepted this calling in her life. Verse 45, blessed is she who has believed what the Lord has said to her will be accomplished. Folks, listen, this is important. This life we live in Christ is not a solo ride. It's not even a me and Jesus ride, folks. It was always God's plan to have a people, not a person, a people to call his own. No matter what's going on in your life, whether you're on a mountaintop or whether you're walking through the valley of the shadow of death, this journey was designed to be walked out in community. That's exactly what Mary is doing. She's found people to go to that can encourage her, people that will lift her up. That is community. We could all use a few Elizabeths in our life, right? Someone to come alongside us during the difficult things, to throw their arms around us, to encourage us, to remind us to be ridiculously happy. Someone to remind us that we are, in fact, blessed. And God has a plan for us. Those three months must have been priceless for Mary. She gets there when Elizabeth is in her sixth month, so it stands to reason that she stayed through the birth of John, okay, before she went home. Having said that, 
You also need to know that having community is not a substitute for intimacy. Mary does go back home, but she doesn't go alone. Mary's intimacy with God continues, and it just deepens by being in community with others. Mary's intimacy, I believe, is revealed in one of the Scripture's most personal songs of joy and praise to God. Verse 46, Mary said, My soul glorifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now on, all generations will call me, guess what, ridiculously happy, blessed. For the mighty one has done great things for me. Holy is his name. His mercy extends to all those who fear him from generation to generation. He has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things and has sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, even as he said to our fathers. Did you notice in this song, because it really is a song, did you notice that the focus of Mary's thinking is exaltation towards God? She begins with her personal reasons for praising God and then moves to the general reason for everyone to give glory to God. But no matter how you look at this song, it's all about God. He has done this for me. He has done that for those who believe. He's done this for the humble. He's done that for the hungry. This is what he does for his people. You know what all that reminds me of? It reminds me of last week again. Count your blessings. Name them one by one. This is the heart of gratitude and praise and thanksgiving that Mary has. This is the intimacy that she has with God. She's in the midst of one of the most difficult journeys of her life. There'll be harder ones to come, but this one, for a 15-year-old girl, this one's got to be extremely difficult. And yet here she stands praising and being thankful for God for what he's doing. When was the last time you had a difficult thing come up and the first place your mind went was to praise and give thanks to God? We can learn some things from Mary. Despite the hardships and judgments that will come, Mary not only accepted, but she embraced the script that God had written for her life. She surrenders her life entirely. And there's that idea of a servant yet again. She allowed God to set the schedule, to make the plans, to write her story. You know what? God has taken notice of you too. He has a plan for your life as he had a plan for Mary's life. When life takes a left turn, it goes sideways, and it looks like it's headed for disaster, it might be a good time to remember the promise God made to his people. He said, I know the plans I've made for you, plans to prosper you, give you hope, and a future. When Mary surrendered her situation to God, she sang about a future that had hope, a living hope, a hope personified in her son, the one that was still yet to be born. That really is kind of the final chapter of Mary's story, and it centers around the arrival of her son. Luke chapter 2, 1 
through 12 says this, in those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor in Syria. And everyone went to his own town to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth to Galilee to Judea to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house in the line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. There were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. And the angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring good news of great joy that will be for all people. For today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is Christ the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Now, can you imagine that first Christmas morning was like? Really? Probably hard for us to really get a handle on. The stable stinks. All stables do. The stench of urine and dung and sheep in particular reek. The ground is hard. The hay is probably scarce. Cobwebs cling to the ceiling, and a mouse probably scurries across the floor picking up stray wheat. A lowlier place of birth could not really exist. Yet, it was in these circumstances, humble though they might be, that God entered into our world. Can you imagine? Mary's head rests on the soft leather of Joseph's saddle. The pain of childbirth, however, is eclipsed by the wonder of of giving birth to her son as she looks into his face. That's something that most women go through when they give birth. It's her son. It's her Lord. It's her king. It's her sovereign. At this point in history, the human being who best understands who God is and what he is doing in this world is a teenage girl in a smelly, dirty stable. Majesty in the midst of the mundane. Holiness in the filth of sheep manure and sweat. Who would have expected to find God entering the world on the floor of a stable through the womb of a teenager in the presence of a carpenter? Kind of gives a new elevation to carpentry, doesn't it? I like that part. Paul Harvey tells about a similar surprise. Charlie was 10 years old. School was out for Christmas, and the family had chosen to spend the holidays in the country. As his mom snaked the car down a twisty road, heavy snow began to fall, and visibility lessened. As she took a curve, the car started to slide, and it didn't stop until it was in a snow-covered ditch. They were stuck. They needed help. So they hiked a mile up the road, and Charlie knocked on the door of a house. A woman invited them in, offered them tea and cookies, and urged them to stay until hope had arrived. Help. She never forgot that day that she spent with those people. She's retold the story a thousand times. And really, who could blame this woman? Two travelers stranded by the winter weather had knocked on her door, and they were none other than Queen Elizabeth and her son, Prince Charles. 
It's not all that often that royalty comes knocking on the door. But something far grander happened in our world. Royalty walked our streets. Heaven's prince knocked on our door. Jesus has been known to show up in the most unexpected places at the most unexpected times. He showed up at a wedding in Cana and provided a bridegroom with a story of their own that they tell a thousand times over. He showed up at Matthew's going away party, mixing and mingling with sinners and saints. He showed up in the midst of a storm on Lake Galilee, and he gave his disciples the shock of their lives. In carpenter shops, in wilderness, at funerals, weddings, empty streets, he even shows up in lonely hearts. Jesus has a knack for showing up in unexpected places, places you'd never expect to spot God. And folks, he still does. There's no place he won't go, no heart he won't touch, no road he won't travel, especially if it takes him to a place he can connect with you. Christmas is a busy season. I get that. I wouldn't change it. I love Christmas. But I'm not interested in getting caught up in all the trimmings and the trappings of the season. I'm interested in getting caught up in the miracle that is Christmas, the miracle that is God with us, Emmanuel. The message of stories and the message of Mary's life is really pretty simple, pretty straightforward. No matter what your life looks like, whether hard times or good times, the best times, the best times can only be had when we get caught up in God's story for our life. When you do, then you surrender to his plan, to the will of God, and then God shows up in miraculous ways. In ordinary places, in hard places, in unpredictable places, Jesus steps into our life to change it for the better, just like he did for an unexpecting, simple girl from a backward town living a simple life as she took the leading role in the greatest story ever told. You have a story to tell. And maybe it doesn't look much like Mary's, but your life is still a testimony to everyone who reads your story. I challenge you, consider Mary. Surrender your heart the way that she did. I'm the Lord's servant. Be it unto me as you've said. And watch and see that God doesn't do something amazing. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I want to thank you that you are a God of the miraculous. You are supernatural. There is nothing natural about you. And yet you choose to work in this natural world with us to turn our lives into something far more than natural, into something that's supernatural, something that escapes reason, goes counterculture to this world we live in. And yet, even in that, it brings us to a place where we can proclaim that we are blessed, ridiculously happy, because we have Jesus in our life. Thank you, Lord, for your gifts, because they make all the difference in this world. In Jesus' name, amen.